0: You know, some things are just as simple as they appear. A trial without witnesses is simply not a trial. You can call it something else,
1: but it's not a trial. But if we go down the road of witnesses, this is not a one-week process. You're not gonna have a witness wand here where we just say, okay, you got a week to do this and get it done. There's no way that would be
0: proper under due process. The question is, shall it be in order to consider and debate any motion to subpoena witnesses or documents? The yeas are 49, the nays are 51. The motion is not agreed to. The Senate stands in recess, subject to the call of the chair.
2: Hi, this is Pardon Me, another damn impeachment show, and this is Colin McEnroe, and I'm really excited that I remembered to say that right at the beginning, because usually I say a few words and then I realize I haven't said that. You don't care about that. but And today, well, every time we do Pardon Me, one of the things we ask ourselves is, where does the impeachment happen? You know, well, it happens in the Senate chamber, but it also happens all over the place. I mean, you're not in the Senate chamber. You're listening to this show right now. You're watching things on television. We experience things not directly, but through various funnels. So we're going to talk today to James Ponowazek, who really thinks deeply about television for the New York Times and who understands that culture is politics and politics is culture and it all crackles through your television set. Mike Pesco one of the smartest people I know he and I are going to talk a little game theory Mike is the host of The Gist. You're going to hear more factoids narrated by Kyone Wolf and I should say that one of the things that has happened that seems to tincture this moment and even though it might not have affected the vote on calling witnesses it seems as though it's kind of changed the coloration a little bit is there's more from the John Bolton book and one of the disclosures is that two months before the famous phone call, so in May they're meeting and Pat Cipollone, one of the White House counsels, is in the room while they're meeting and. President Trump is talking about wanting this deal in, in Ukraine and wanting the investigation in return for the military aid. So, you know, that changes the timeline a little bit. And speaking of timeline, I'm not 100 percent sure where in the timeline we are right now as you're listening to this. The last thing I knew before I sat in front of this microphone was that this was probably going to roll past the State of the Union address, that we won't really wrap up the trial until Wednesday or Thursday. However, this is a very fast-moving thing. I mean, things change all the time. So the one thing that I can tell you is that no matter what has happened since the time I sat at this microphone, everything that's on the show will be fascinating, all right? You will be fascinated, or your money back. We're going to start with the very fascinating Frankie Graziano. We did, as we often do, send him out to a big Y and a library to talk to some of those wonderful, elusive regular
0: folks. I'm in Tallinn, Connecticut, home to the Tallinn Eagles, the red and white antique store, and a strip club. I want to ask people a few impeachment-related questions. These guys got a couple of pizzas. I kind of want to bother them. You guys busy? You guys paying attention to the impeachment at all? A
1: little bit here and there, reading the headlines. You know, I'm not a huge politics guy. I haven't really been paying too much
3: attention to the trial. The president, you know, I'm just, you know, not really... Happy about him now, anyways.
4: He should be gone.
5: I, I'm really just have lost interest. I guess at this point, I think losing my attention is just that. It's been so much, so many different things, and I really have not been following it. I'm not a big fan of President Trump.
1: It's definitely you know historic, regardless of what happens on either side.
6: I think unfortunately we have Republicans and Democrats, and they're not working together. Even though you know, I think some of the Republicans would like to be on the other side. I don't think they are, and. It's unfortunate because I think some not so good things are happening. I just wish they'd impeach him. Just do it. Just do it.
0: You want them to go ahead and just get rid of Trump? Just get rid of him. Yes,
7: please. Ridiculous. He's our president. We voted him in, and I think this is what we should do follow our leader because he is a commander in chief, and that's fair. And four years from now, they'd vote somebody else, and then if he's president, we still should respect the president. Because right now, I feel that any kid in school is not going to want to be president because of the fact that they're impeaching this guy for absolutely nothing.
6: I think the evidence is there. I mean, all you have to do is pick up the paper, listen to the news. It's so obvious. It's just pitiful.
7: Not right just because some Democrats think they just lost their vote. Doesn't give them the right to beat the guy up. He's a commander-in-chief. They, they didn't do that with Obama. They didn't do it when President Kennedy was president. People loved him. It's not the same anymore. People have lost respect for our president. Again, he's the boss of this country for four years. We should respect that. I think it's a waste of taxpayer's money, to be honest with you. They can spend that money on something like feeding people and fixing our roads instead of trying to find out who did what and what, who did what, when, and how. I think that's just ridiculous. Just a bunch of spoiled brats. That's how I feel.
6: I've been waiting for this to happen for four years. (laughs) So it's about time, you know. I think it's fair, but, you know, not everybody's going to agree. People agree on party lines, and I think that's unfortunate
7: i think the democrats aren't playing fair it's not like i mean come on the guy the guy's a billionaire he didn't have to become president i mean he did it because he loves his country he felt that he could probably do us righteous by doing what he's done to create this money and help give us a better standard of living but obviously not but i don't feel the man did anything wrong i'm assuming you voted for trump i didn't vote at all you didn't vote at all
0: just tell me this is maybe this is a better question are you more worried now about impeachment than you were at the beginning of the trial or are you feeling the same?
7: About the same. I think it's just going to blow over and they're going to find nothing, absolutely nothing. And again, we live in a world where you should be careful what to say and what to do because of the fact that people just suck.
0: How about this? Can you see uh, right now if either side is winning, I guess, if you could say that?
7: I don't want to say either
1: side's winning. You know, I, I, just, I like to, you know, kind of wait it out. I don't want to jump to conclusions and say that one side's winning over the other. That's tough to do in politics. Things are always changing, so. What
0: do you got? You guys got a party pizza and two pizzas and a, and a grinder. What are you guys going to do with those?
1: Eat them. Eat them up real well. Bring them to our friends and uh, make the most out of this Wednesday. Is it Wednesday? I think it is.
0: All right. I know you guys got to go. You got pizzas and grinders for the boys. But uh, just real quick, tell me what's going to happen in the Super Bowl this Sunday.
1: it's going to be a good game a tight game but at the end of the day I think Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs are going to take it away so
0: Chiefs I try to be a professional and not comment on their football picks it kind of pissed me off when they said that they were rooting for the Chiefs I was a big 49ers fan now ah, what are you gonna do That was Connecticut
2: Public Radio's Frankie Graziano out of the Talon Big Y and the Talon Library talking to Ken Vassilonis from Willington and a guy named Billy and another guy named Ben Zakowski from West Hartford and Ben's friend who didn't want to give us his name and some other people who didn't give us their names. I don't know why. Maybe the shopping carts caught fire. Can that actually happen? And I would also like to say, go Chiefs. So, ever since we started this new show, I really wanted to have Mike Pesca on it. Mike Pesca is the host of the Slate Daily podcast, The Gist, which you should be making a part of your life if you have not already, and the editor of Upon Further Review, The Greatest What Ifs in Sports History, which is a terrific book as well. So, Mike, first of all, welcome to Pardon Me. Oh, wow. Thanks for the pardon. <laughs> all right. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately, and I know it's actually a subject that you have some interest in, is game theory. Like, a lot of this is starting to come down to game theory, right? We call Bolton, they call Biden. You know, what if we acquit and we acquit too early and it produces the opposite result? I feel as though each of these sides should have a game theory consultant kind of exploring these decision trees for them.
3: Yeah, but I don't think you'd need uh, Von Neiman, the master of game theory. (laughs) I think this game's a little simpler. Maybe you'd need, I don't know, some third grader who's okay at (laughs) (laughs) tic-tac-toe. It seems like it's more bluster of org game theory than all the uh, back and forth and will they and won't they, and I think we have the votes and I think we don't. I guess that could affect the game, like Schrodinger's cat, but I think it's more just hemming and hawing on the way to the actual game, which is Will we get the witness, Bolton? Will there be a price to pay if we don't get the witness? And then maybe Biden is just the X factor to leaven the cost of not getting Bolton or maybe getting Bolton. Hey, they wouldn't give us Biden. That becomes our excuse. Or we wouldn't give in and let them have Biden, the Democrats can say. And that's why you can still blame them. Right. What I'm saying is not that complex a game and actually <laughs> more of a straightforward question.
2: Although, when you said it, it didn't sound like it was not about game theory. Uh... Well, maybe
3: that's just a reflection of my inarticulateness on the <laughs> question, should they get Bolton, which is, yeah, they should get Bolton if they want to do a fair process. But since they don't want to do a fair process, of course they can't get bolted. And then the question becomes, well, can they live without getting Bolton? Probably Corey Gardner and maybe Susan Collins can't. And so... That's why Susan Collins can vote for Bolton, not get Bolton. Everyone's happy.
2: Right. That's a part of game theory in politics that I'm very familiar with, which is senators figuring out whether it's possible to vote for something in such a way that it won't happen, but they can be recorded as having voted for or in some cases against something. I live in the home state of Joe Lieberman, who really made a decades-long career of opposing things and then voting for them in such a way as to create a record. That's another part of game theory.
3: Yeah, his moderation and centrism was just the centrist between Hem and Haw sometimes.
2: <laughs> I mean, in a way, the amount of bluster, the amount of hemming and hawing, the amount of posturing that's gone on from that podium has—and not that anybody's under any obligation to provide us with an entertaining impeachment trial, although your friend, uh, Mr. Ponawazek, is going to also be on this episode talking about that very question. But there is a way in which this 19th century process, this 1868 process, which is unfolding in 2020, is— fundamentally dissatisfying. Is it dissatisfying because it's structured in a very old fashioned way or is it unsatisfying because the actual practitioners here in 2020 are not satisfying to listen to?
3: All the potential of it being unsatisfying was baked into the law by people who wrote the laws or generally described what the process would be in the 17 and then 1800s. So very little was described in the Constitution. The Johnson impeachment set great precedent. So it was all the potential for it to be really boring was there. And that potential was realized by the Moses of boredom, Mitch McConnell, the man who came down from Mount Boredom and gave us more rules for boredom than we ever thought we could have. The man who uses boredom among his chief Right. But yeah, I mean, you know, in the 1800s, people used to go out and listen to when we hear about the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which were supposedly the grand entertainment of the time, they took six hours. So an attention span and straining to hear the spoken word was once seen as great entertainment. Now it's just horrible. Even the very process. I have to tell you, Colin. I don't know if I like watching this. I feel compelled to watch it, mm. but what I have to do is I have to watch it at least two hours after it happened because this way I could watch it on YouTube and put it on at double speed. Because <laughs> when, when the timeline catches up to the present and these lawyers are talking at regular speed and the interminable length between a senator saying, I have a question and John Roberts reading the question, I cannot take it. My 21st century attention span cannot take it. And I think that's Mitch McConnell's point.
2: Right although I, I don't feel as though you're the perfect test subject about this, I mean, I happen to know that you listen to a lot of things at 1.5 and 1.75 a lot of yeah. things that most people would probably want to only be in 1.0 on that there's something about the pesca neurology that doesn't want to slow down to the pace uh, of a, a normal speaker.
3: Well, I mean there's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is if I listen in double speed and you listen in normal speed, you're spending twice as much time with Pat
2: Baloney, as I am <laughs> there is that see that feels like game theory all of a sudden okay so there have been these moments you know you look for these moments now and Bolton was a bolt of lightning in a pretty boring landscape this sudden idea that this unannounced stranger was going to walk in and, and change things around I would agree that we are for the most part sifting through some pretty empty sand to find these little exciting nuggets. Although, have you enjoyed the spectacle of Alan Dershowitz? I mean, uh, I'll get specific about it, but I'll just say Alan Dershowitz and see what you say back first.
3: Yeah, I have. I mean, terrible, terrible arguments. But if you're going to make a terrible argument, do it with verve and aplomb. And I think Dershowitz does that. I mean, Cipollone is boring and Seculo ain't great and Philbin doesn't excite me. And then Dershowitz comes along and he's got a little spring to his step. It's a somewhat erratic, insane, and not keeping with best practices of walking step. But there's a little something there. So if we're talking about entertainment value and a trial with some pizzazz, I like it. And I do have to say, as much as I don't agree with Dershowitz's sentiment, I much prefer his form of argumentation, which is premise, premise, thesis, and then we can pick it apart, to the Jim Jordan version of that or to the Doug Collins version of that. And it's not just, I don't know, Jim Jordan has a Southern accent, even though he's from Ohio. It's not just the verbal presentation. It's, I feel deeply insulted when Jim Jordan does this whole, four things that'll change, that'll never change. I hate that. When Dershowitz lays it out, I think he's, not insulting my intelligence, I think he's trying to trick me, and I congratulate myself for being able to see through his arguments. Whereas Jim Jordan, I just—it was just a, an itch to scratch.
2: There may have been a moment, and it's certainly something that the internet's are speculating about today. Where yesterday, where—and I should say—we're having this conversation kind of in between the two question periods. So this would have happened on Wednesday. Dershowitz said the following: Every public official that I know believes that his election is in the public interest. And mostly you're right. Your election is in the public interest. And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. All right, Meg Pesca,
3: react. As rightly said, he just laid out the case that The phrase unimpeachable behavior should just be modified to behavior when the president does it. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as unimpeachable if he thinks it's in the public interest. But what was interesting to me was that he's been saying this all along. I guess it's that he said it from the Senate floor or that he said it so starkly. He was hired because this was his argument that he was going to make. Then he made the argument and everyone lost their minds a little, not least of which Dershowitz. You know, it's a terrible theory. What the Republicans were trying to do was offer us a poo-poo platter, right? If you want to vote acquittal because of this, fine, or that, fine. But what Dershowitz did is he really poo-pooed on the poo-poo platter because he gave (laughs) us an untenable, very much unworkable reason to acquit. And I think now to some extent, some extent, the the extent where we, we behave in a rational world. But to some extent, he complicated the Republicans who are going to acquit anyway, because when they were going to acquit based on one of seven arguments that you could agree or disagree with, fine. But now if you acquit, to some extent, you have to say, oh, so you're saying you agree with Dershowitz's argument? He put a little bit, he's trying to help the president by giving them an off-ramp to vote for acquittal. I think he put a little bit of a hurdle there, a hurdle that will be overcome, don't get me wrong. But you know, from now on, every Republican who votes to acquit will have to answer the question: So you believe in Dershowitz? And I'm sure they're all say, "No, no, no, it's for these other reasons." Yeah. But you know, that is a burden on them. I mean, they believe
2: in Dershowitz in the sense that they believe Dershowitz exists; that he's not something right. that parents have made up to explain to children why right. they why... believe in
3: Dershowitz more than they believe in evolution. <laughs> but yeah.
2: <laughs> so then, Dershowitz on this day that we're talking, I mean, he almost broke Twitter by saying he tweeted. They He's talking about CNN and MSNBC, people he doesn't like. They characterize my argument as if I had said that if a president believes that his reelection was in the national interest, he can do anything. I said nothing like that, as anyone who actually heard what I said can attest. And at this point, he really kind of has us stymied, right? He said this thing, and now he's tweeting that anybody who listened to him say this thing would know that he didn't say this thing. But it works for
3: the president. It works for his client. (laughs) He must be saying, "Why why can't I get away with this? Is there something about me that Breitbart and Steve Bannon can't get behind? You might wonder,
2: <laughs> stroking his chin. Right. Is this the same problem I have on Martha's Vineyard, where people, for just no reason, decide they don't like me? So, to me, one of the most powerful articles that I've read in the last two or three weeks, in terms of just giving you another way to think about this, was Jonathan Mahler's piece in the New York Times about Rudy Giuliani, where he got into that whole stretch where he just said, really, this is about an era of shamelessness. This is about an era of people, not just Rudy Giuliani, and not even just Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump, but an era where you can do stuff like this. You can say a thing, which on its face is kind of outrageous, the notion that a president in pursuit of re-election is by definition, therefore, in a virtuous state of mind and action, and then... Issue a tweet saying that you never said such a thing and that the people who are saying that you said such a thing are being grotesquely unfair to you. Increasingly, the ability of the rest of us to blow a whistle or officiate that process is starting to seem futile.
3: Shamelessness is the word and shamelessness is defined by what the rest of us, the norms the rest of us cleave to. So in olden days, when a glimpse of stocking was seen as shocking, it was because that was the message that society was given. Now, Trump pushes the envelope and finds out that there's a broad swath of society that will not shame him for this, that will either applaud him or at least ignore him or price it in and be cynical. I mean, that's, I guess, some sort of nefarious innovation. It's shameless, but the shame redounds to us or at least the significant portions of us that don't just say, I'm sorry, 16,000
2: lies are too much. I mean, we saw it also on Saturday as the Trump defense team began to kind of lay out their argument. Their argument was very, very heavily weighted towards the idea that they're just, apart from maybe Gordon Sondland, there just isn't anybody who's an eyewitness. And then the Bolton book trickles out and it just appears as though they've wasted two hours of their Saturday making <laughs> an argument that is so easily overturned. You might expect them to come back on Monday and go, Well, sorry about that. But they don't, right? They don't really acknowledge that Bolton is that big a problem for them.
3: When they make that argument, they're making a necessary or sufficient argument in some way. It's not true legally, but essentially what they were arguing is it is necessary to have the eyewitness in order to convict. Not true, but that's what they're arguing. So if they're arguing that, you would also, of course, have to conclude, therefore, The presence of an eyewitness would be sufficient to convict. And then the eyewitness comes forward and then they say, oh, yeah, forget all about that. That's the crazy making part of it.
2: Like, I have these moments where I'm just walking my dog around the neighborhood, listening to the gist at 1.0 speed. But I'm thinking... (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking, is there an end to this process? Not this process of impeachment, but the historic cycle that we're in. And does it come to an end, is there a point in which Mitch McConnell really is invalidated as this person who sowed chaos and so aggressively attacked basic institutions and institutional functions and norms that were helpful in the perpetuating of some kind of constructive debate. Is there an end where all of this stops like it does at the end of Lord of the Rings or something?
3: It's all must end speech. Yes. Yeah.
2: Maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm the only one walking around doing that and listening to you on my earbuds and wondering about that. Do you wonder about that? Can there be some kind of moment where they say, well, we'll never do that again?
3: Yeah. So what I think is going to happen, it, was, it will never come from McConnell because McConnell is in his own way a master of the Senate. He's exposing that the Senate has all these flaws, but he's working within the norms and the rules of the Senate to get his way. He'll at least be regarded by... His party and his partisans as having done a job really well. I do think it all comes undone and crashing down for Trump, although if he wins the next election, it won't. But then what I think happens is the entirety of the Republican Party and conservative thought disassociates themselves with ever having thought that. And there are so many precedents for this. I could point to, like, support for the Iraq War, which. Democrats just punished candidates if they voted for the Iraq war, perhaps not remembering that the masses of Democratic voters were for the Iraq war. But just put that aside. I think what happens is Trump becomes this symbol of an aberration. And it's not an aberration. It's exactly in keeping with where the party is. But then again, to some extent, if we have a two party system, they're going to always organize themselves around different sides of issues And they will change so that parties will try to get, you know, a 50 percent mind share on different issues. This is what happens when, you know, Democrats couldn't get elected for the second half of the 19th century. So basically, in a nutshell, is what I think happens is someone gets their comeuppance. It's probably Trump. Everyone performs a feat of cognitive dissonance to convince themselves, well, we're not Trumpian. Trump was Trumpian. And we go on in this two-party system without much
2: accountability. I'm wondering if what you just said, which I think makes a lot of sense, is an explanation for, say, Mitt Romney. Because there has to be some people who can come forward when Trumpism is really, really discredited. Is that who Romney is trying to be right now? Yeah, I think a lot of the never-Trumpers are. And I think a lot
3: of the most... Vocal Trumpers are the people who align themselves with Trump 90-something percent of the time will tell themselves that story. You know, I think to some extent, to be more fair to Mitch McConnell than he's been fair to us, I think that describes Mitch McConnell, who doesn't love Trump, who doesn't love what he would call the excesses of Trump, but does love his agenda and his power and uses Trump to get it. And that's probably the vast majority of the Republican Party and maybe even the vast majority of people on the right or conservative side or who will be voting Republican in this or future elections.
2: Right. We're sort of back to game theory in the sense that a lot of Republicans in the Senate who, as you say, don't like Trump, never liked Trump. I mean, Susan Collins was caught on Mike saying he was crazy. You know, they're all looking at this and they're saying, how much do I have to do for him, whether it's deciding not to call witnesses, whether it's voting to acquit, to avoid the kind of punishment that is currently meted out to the Jeff Flakes of this world, to the Bob Corkers... Of this world how much do I have to do for this man to avoid having his followers attempt to destroy me and having him want to destroy me with the power that he currently holds and how much do I have to do to preserve the notion that I never really was part of Sauron's minions I was just sort of waiting for the whole Sauron thing to go over so I could get back and you make some kind of common cause with the elves yeah
3: yeah and how far after Trump do I go so that I'm not an orc, you know, someone yeah. who is turned and undead and I can convince myself I still have agency within this army? Look, I think that it is what a lot of Republicans are thinking. And I think that actually that is their belief. And this is politics. And there's no clearly delineated lane. Here's the test case for a Republican who's a Republican in good standing, elected and popular among their constituents while having defied Trump. I mean, there are people in the media who do that. There are people who, like maybe Mitt Romney, who recently won election in Utah, where it enormously popular and won't have to stand for election for, I think it's four years from now. But, you know, Mark Sanford broke with Trump and got broken. And there's a bunch of people. Not everyone Trump supported won their primary, but every Republican who's vocally broken with Trump on the eve of an election has been hurt by that.
2: That, of course, was Mike Pesca, host of the Daily Slate podcast, The Gist. Up next, we've got a question from Connecticut Public Radio's very own Carmen Baskoff. And we've gotten that question answered by Slate's very own legal expert, Dahlia Lithwick.
4: In some ways, the impeachment process and trial looks a bit like a court trial, but in other ways, it looks very different. This time around, the president has a team of lawyers defending him during the Senate trial. But my question is, would it be possible for the president to plead guilty? Is there anything sort of along the lines of a plea bargain that the president could enter into? And if so, what would be the consequences of that?
6: This is not a criminal trial. We have to remember that this is not a crime. And... One of the things that we keep tripping over when we hear Donald Trump's lawyer saying no due process, no due process. There is no due process because the president is not being accused of a crime and he's not going to suffer any losses to life, liberty, property, right? Nothing gets taken away from him. If he is, in fact, convicted, he loses his job. But unlike, you know, in the olden days in British impeachments where you could be hung or your all your lands could be seized if you were impeached and convicted, here, there's no actual criminal consequences. So, I think this is one of those places where it's useful to remember that this is a trial, but not a trial. It's just not a criminal process. To the extent that Donald Trump, I guess, could plead guilty, he could leave office. (laughs) That would be, I think
2: the equivalent. I'm no Dahlia Lithwick, but I will add my expertise to that and just say that basically what happens in these situations is you trade the office out for the end of the impeachment process. So John Rowland and his wife had been subpoenaed for the impeachment hearings. They fought the subpoena all the way up to the state Supreme Court and lost, at which point Rowland promptly resigned because he didn't want to have to testify under oath. He wanted the whole process to end. And the way that you make it end is you resign. And then there's, nothing, no, there's no impeachment process. There's no, you know, ripeness anymore. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's what we both think here, right? I think so. If you've got your own impeachment question, send it to us at ctpublic.org unless the impeachment is over, in which case your question should be about where to get toilet paper on the afterscape when civilization breaks down. We're gonna take a break here, then we'll come back and we'll do a brand new edition of Factoids with Kyon Wolf. And then we'll talk to the New York Times chief television critic, James Panawazik, about the impeachment as television. Hi, I'm Colin McEnroe. This is Pardon Me, and here I present to you the fifth edition of the very popular Factoids with Coyone Wolf.
5: According to government documents, Rudy Giuliani's son, Andrew H. Giuliani, makes $95,000 per year working for the White House. He's 31. His official title is Special Assistant to the President, Associate Director of the Office of Public Liaison. His job has something to do with reaching out to the sports community. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer says Lev Parness's attorney called his office for tickets to the impeachment trial. And he said he gave him a ticket just like he would give him to any New Yorker. But he added, I'm not sure Parnas would be allowed in because of the electronics around his ankle. <laughs> Honeybees eat one another's barf. When they get back to their nests, they throw up their nectar into wax receptacles so the other bees can have some. This has nothing to do with the impeachment, but I found it very upsetting. Vermont Senator Patrick J. Leahy carries a Nikon digital camera when he's not in the chamber and sometimes joins the news photographers shooting scenes of key trial figures in the Capitol hallways. Sometimes he takes pictures of the photographers themselves. Leahy was born nearly blind in one eye and has made photography a lifetime hobby. Mitt Romney entered the Senate chamber this week with a bottle of chocolate milk. The milk has to be in a glass. We've been over and over this. House manager Adam Schiff has been wearing different House lapel pins from different Congresses with each suit jacket he wears during the impeachment trial. Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema has shown up on trial days rocking everything from a red dress with a cape to a knee-length fuzzy pink coat. She takes notes in a sparkly pink notebook. Honey is not bee barf. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I'm Kyone Wolf, and this has been Factoids.
2: From the very beginning, the concept of this show was that yes, we would look at impeachment from the point of view of political science and legalism and all that happy stuff, but we would also look at impeachment as what it is, which is partially a cultural event. And I think it's also somewhat fair to say these days that, and, and for a long time it has been the case, that almost any significant public event is... Just by extension, a television event. And certainly impeachment falls into that category. And the ideal person to talk to about this is James Ponowazik, the chief television critic for The New York Times and the author of Audience of One, Donald Trump, Television and the Fracturing of America. The title should tell you why he's the ideal person to be talking to right now. So welcome back to our show, James Ponawazek. Thanks, Colin. So you say that you've been binge-watching democracy. (laughs) I guess now it does seem as though some of the quote-unquote actors in this drama kind of understand that they're in something like this. Matt Gatz tweeted this week, this defense needs a little less Atticus Finch and a little more Miss Universe. And that was in response to Ann Coulter having tweeted, Ken Star litigation strategy, torture the Senate with such an excruciatingly boring presentation that they cannot take another minute of this trial. There's this kind of underlying assumption, you know, in those kinds of comments that this has to work as television, it has to rise to at least some of the people's standards for, I don't know, if not entertainment, engrossment, or it's a failure.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I think that there is this notion that, you know, a presentation in a trial like this can't simply be exhaustive or Damning or comprehensive in evidence, it also has to be surprising. There need to be twists, right? There's this phenomenon of something tends to get more media attention if it is a surprise, if it's a shock, than if it's something weightier that you already knew. I mean, that's something that's played out in this case over and over again. And so you often see the presentation and the impeachment judge less by, is this actually impeachable conduct? Is this something that we should or should not be disturbed by as citizens of a democracy, but simply, oh, have we already heard this before? What's the new angle? What's the hook? What's the twist? And then beyond that, of course, there are also, as there are in any you know sort of example of political theater, people with incentives to characterize it certain ways, right? Like honestly, one of the meta arguments against impeachment that's been brought against the case since its its earliest days, you heard this a lot from Republicans on the, on the House Intelligence and Judiciary Committees is, oh, this is boring. The American people are bored by this. Don't watch this. Tune it off. You know, snooze go find something else to watch. So yes, number one, I think that there are these sort of You know, a few good men type expectations where, you know, we kind of tend to judge a case like this as a nothing burger if it doesn't have like a Colonel Jessup, you need me on that wall kind of moment. And then you also have parties who are sort of delivering theater criticism on it that is often motivated by the incentive to spin the event a certain way or another.
2: I think this particular event. Although, if you go back to 1999, obviously, the depositions of Lewinsky and Sidney Blumenthal and Vernon Jordan were videotaped and then shown yes. at trial. So this isn't the first time in an impeachment where they've kind of thrown to the tape, as they say in news. But this here, it's really a feature rather than a bug, right? One of the things that the House managers did a lot of, and then the Trump defense also started to do a little bit, is just throw to tape rather than just than stand there like Daniel Webster orating away.
4: Yeah, I found that really interesting. I think at one point, Hakeem Jeffries actually even used the phrase, let's go to the videotape during the impeachment manager's presentation. And, you know, this partly, again, I think is cognizant of the fact that, you know, this is a visual presentation. And partly in order to engage a broad audience, you want to give it visual interest. And they're straitjacketed by a very static basic presentation that is provided by uh, the fact that there are no independent cameras in the Senate chamber for this. They're limited to, I believe it's it's two camera angles Mm -hmm. on Senate controlled cameras that, you know, show you the speaker and show you a wide shot of the chamber so that, you know, for instance, nobody's going to catch an awkward reaction shot or, you know, a senator falling asleep in his chair. And so there's obviously an argumentative reason, an evidentiary reason to, you know, throw in snippets of testimony from the earlier hearings or whatever. But it also just allows you to sort of, you know, build momentum and create visual interest in a story so that your audience isn't just seeing it as kind of radio on TV.
2: Right. And I mean, in some ways, this kind of compounds the idiocracy problem. I mean, I feel like as part of the audience, I am part of the idiocracy too, thinking, well, yeah, they, they really do need to jazz this up a little a little bit more even though this is one of the most momentous things that can happen in the life of this republic, I'm yep. getting a little tired right now. Show me something else. I'm actually kind of happy switching over to a break and Jeffrey Tubin and Michael Isakoff and Gloria Borger are there to kind of give me a little bit of relief
4: what you're basically asking people to do in a case like this however important and you know monumental a thing it is for a democracy to consider if you're asking millions of people to watch these proceedings on TV you're basically asking them to sit in on jury duty right something that people generally go out of their way to avoid sitting on a jury you might listen to hours and hours of testimony with little visual interest and you know, you're know you there because you're compelled to, because this is partly or really mostly a political process where you're trying to reach people beyond the room, you kind of, like it or not, have to be conscious of what's going to hold the attention of somebody who you don't have subpoena power over, who, who you can't force to listen to that presentation.
2: So one of the things that you've pointed out, and I think it's a really important thing, I mean, each iteration of a big event like this, whether it's a Hill and Thomas or the Clinton impeachment or the OJ trial or these kind of mediathons, to use Frank Rich's term, each one of them has to sort of make use of or utilize or have players within it who understand the state of the media at this moment. And one of the things about media at this moment is that each event is kind of vertically integrated with a lot of stuff that goes with it. So if you have people who are really interested in this, you know, yes, that they can watch this kind of C-SPAN style feed of Senate TV and they can watch whichever cable news show or NPR they want to have cutting in during the breaks. But there's all this other stuff, you know? I mean, Ted Cruz has a podcast that he does every day, and I think Doug Jones is doing kind of these seven-minute social media video things just direct-to-camera. There's a way in which you have to understand that people would watch Game of Thrones and then listen to a two-hour and 49-minute podcast of two dudes just rehashing the recent episode. That's going on here, too, I think.
4: Yeah, that's kind of a phenomenon in so many things in media today is that you have to sort of be conscious, not just of the audience of the main program, but A, the people who are going to want extreme deep dives, who, you know, just want hours and hours and hours of content on whatever it is they're interested in, be it impeachment or something else, or the people who are just going to get bits and pieces of it here and there, right? So the other side of this is that you see a certain amount of these presentations that may seem kind of disjointed or random in context, but are really aimed more at people watching selected snippets of the proceedings at a later point. One place where I was noticing this a lot was in the Republican committee members' responses during the House Intelligence Committee hearings, where they would often be, you know, sort of going off on tangents about such and such player in the Ukraine or the deep state or whatnot. That is sort of a casual viewer, or even somebody who had been following that proceeding might have seemed random, but it actually, you know, would be, say, a topic that had been discussed a lot on Hannity you know, or some other sort of conservative media sphere entity that they know a lot of their base is watching and following. So in other words, you're basically seeing, you know, be it Jim Jordan or whoever talking on screen, they'll often be saying things that don't necessarily flow from the context of the hearing, but are perfect as a 30 minute snippet on that night's Hannity or your Facebook feed or whatever. So, so you know, you're kind of seeing a lot of manufactured mini-content within the show.
2: And so the the obverse of that, I mean, if in the chamber, uh, you know, a, a House person will be, as you say, referencing something that, that exists outside the chamber and, and has a whole context to it that's a separate story. I mean, the obverse of that, I think, is that many of the senators here are starting to realize that the most important part of their day probably is when they step out into the hall and Like Joni Ernst from Iowa has proven very good at just walking out in the hall, finding those cameras and having something to say that then becomes part of the news cycle and maybe even a bigger part of the news cycle than most of what transpires inside the Senate.
4: Yeah, in one case, it even became a campaign ad for Joe Biden, uh, (laughs) I believe, when she uh, basically made some reference to the proceedings being politically damaging to him and his campaign then turned that around into a campaign ad aimed at Iowa, basically making the point of, oh, look how afraid they are of me. You know, I'm I'm even coming up in this context. So yeah, and also the fact of an, an impeachment trial is <laughs> it's a situ- it's a rare situation where you have a hundred senators compelled to be entirely silent, which is, you know, not their normal state of being. So there's a lot of pent up energy that comes out in between sessions. And Uh, you know, uh, uh, several of these senators are in the middle of a campaign for president. So one dynamic that we've been seeing in the Senate trial is that there have been these sort of, you know, interstitial Iowa moments with Amy Klobuchar and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren getting in front of the cameras in a way that they've been prevented on the campaign trail. So there are a lot of motives like that there. And all of this, of course, compounded by the fact that this whole trial concerns a highly TV-aware, ratings-conscious media creature president.
2: Right. And so we should also say that in these situations, careers can be made. And it often has something to do. I mean, you know, we go back to McLuhan and he's talking about JFK versus Nixon. McLuhan's theories don't really make sense in the age of HDTV. The valences are just very, very different now. But, I mean, it seems pretty clear, for example, that Adam Schiff and Hakeem Jeffries, at minimum, are coming out of this process at a very different spot on the political continuum than they entered in. Uh, you know, their profiles are bigger and there's kind of a sense that, oh, yeah, at minimum, these two people really work well on television.
4: Yeah, much as Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar did after the Kavanaugh hearings, which certainly boosted their viability as presidential candidates when time came around for that. But yeah, you know, I think that The substance of the arguments aside and the substance of the trial aside, there's always a meta element to a proceeding like this, whether it's a Senate hearing, an impeachment trial or whatever, that you are sort of making a case for yourself to your party as a spokesman. You know, you're sort of saying, you know. I am the sort of person who you can imagine making our case in the future, you know, whether it's as a speaker of the house someday or as a presidential candidate. So, for a lot of people you are simultaneously arguing the case in the moment and kind of making an audition as a public leader.
2: So another thing, we're talking to James Poniewozik right now, chief television critic for The New York Times, the author of Audience of One, Donald Trump, Television and the Fracturing of America, a book I really recommend if you want to kind of understand a huge chunk of what's going on right now. So, you know, another thing that's interesting about all this, to me anyway, is that if you want to have a successful series, even a limited run series like this one, you can introduce new people, but if every time you watched Game of Thrones, it was just like a whole bunch of new people you'd never seen before, that wouldn't work. And so, you know, we're encountering a lot of people that most Americans haven't seen before. They've never seen Val Demings before. They had never seen Hakeem Jeffries before. They don't know who Pat Cipollone is. Even Jay Sekulow probably isn't terribly familiar to them. So it's helpful, I think, if you have recurring characters, characters that people actually know, and maybe even if star to kind of read and try to decode. That's why Gary Busey was on Celebrity Apprentice and not somebody you never heard of. And you've had so many opportunities over time to get to know Alan Dershowitz. I mean, Dershowitz, at least, is somebody that a lot of people know. And he's been chosen by Trump for that reason, too, right?
4: Yeah, exactly. And he likes people that are good on TV and that have been good about making the case for him on TV. Ironically, that was a big reason why he hired John Bolton. Mm-hmm. You know he'd watched John Bolton on Fox, where Bolton had been a figure for years and liked his his style on TV. He makes a lot of hires that way. And as you say, if you are launching a new TV series, one thing you do is you cast familiar people that people remember from shows in the past. Well, Alan Dershowitz, in addition to being you know a, a prominent devil's advocate for Trump on Fox, these recent months, was the star of the biggest daytime soap of the 1990s, the O.J. Simpson trial. Now, that does not necessarily have, you know, positive associations for a lot of people, having defended O.J., whose reputation has not exactly become more positive over the years. But celebrity is celebrity. And Alan Dershowitz is a celebrity lawyer who generates interest, who people associate with, you know, being somebody who is able to get people off on on charges and is telegenic. Trump picked Ken Starr for his defense team for much of the same reasons. The many ironies <laughs> with you know the case that he had argued against Bill Clinton notwithstanding. This is a familiar figure who he knew was good on TV. And this has been kind of an interesting dynamic to me with the whole Trump side of the impeachment case. Because I feel like there's a bit of a tension here between Donald Trump who is the guy who is always conscious of his ratings. His life has been sort of based on the philosophy that there's no such thing as bad attention. Just make sure they spell your name right. Make sure you get in the headlines. Make sure you get the biggest numbers. He is sort of inclined to want a showy, much-watched defense. He even tweeted out that he wasn't happy about his defense beginning on Saturday because, as he said correctly, it was, quote-unquote, Death Valley for TV ratings. And so they actually did do a shorter presentation on Saturday. On the other hand, people like Mitch McConnell would just assume this show had as short a run as possible and would like to get it off the air with as little attention and fuss as possible. So So there's been a bit of a tension there. But I do think that Trump's instinct is always to put on a show that's going to grab people's attention, even if people have criticized a lot of the arguments that Alan Dershowitz has has made, even if these stars that you're picking are sort of lightning rods. That attention is better than being ignored.
2: There's a lot of game theory here. And Trump's version of game theory here is I would rather have a big spectacle in which I could at least impose on it the narrative that I won, that yeah. I've been exonerated, even if there are some pretty clanky parts to it and a way that the narrative could be read differently than have something nobody watched and nobody knows about. He'll take the spectacle every time and he's willing to kind of roll the dice a little bit on this. I do feel as though every time we look at something like this we reach back for a thousand points of reference not points of light. And you know looking at Dershowitz these days and this could be just me but the person that he's starting to remind me of is the lawyer on the wire who represented the Barksdale organization. You know? (laughs) I think his name was Maury Levy. And yeah, and, yeah. and when you watch him, you thought, oh, yeah, this guy's ethics are completely fungible. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows how to talk about what he's doing in a way that doesn't completely put him in the jackpot. And he knows how to shift with the shifting ground underneath his feet. So he, he stays stable. And that's all very important to him. I mean, when Dershowitz is confronted with what he said in the past, he'll say things like, well, I was right then, but I'm even righter now or something. Yeah. He really reminds me of that guy. And I'm thinking, This is kind of instead of the West Wing, this is kind of the wire at the White House.
4: Yeah, you know, and you might think that having that sort of slippery public presentation is not great for you from a public image standpoint. But on the other hand, I think that Donald Trump would rather look like a winner than a saint in any situation you know what i mean and i don't think if the impression is that well maybe he did something but everybody does bad things and you know once again he came out on top and he got this great team of lawyers to get him off and he you know got basically his jury nullification by the senate like oj did and got away with it that is not necessarily a bad message to him if you, you know, accept that sort of the impression you want to leave at the end is dominance and having won even more so than innocence. So in that case, sending the message, Hey, my, you know, high priced lawyers came up with these arguments that got me to go free, that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world for him.
2: That was James Ponowazik, chief television critic for The New York Times, the author of Audience of One, Donald Trump Television, and The Fracturing of America. He joined us by Skype. I don't know why that's important. And it turns out that's our show for this week. I have been your host. I may still be your host in the future, Colin McEnroe. It's not clear what's going to happen now, obviously. But something will happen and we'll keep doing pardon me for a while, even after the impeachment is over. So don't panic is what I'm saying. Extra thanks should go to Gina Amitruda, who kept us on the air in various ways. The producers of this show are Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McPants. And sure, we're on Connecticut Public Radio Saturdays at noon, as long as Saturdays continue to exist and noon continues to be a workable concept, which is like maybe one more week. And we're also in the podcast places you know and pretty much always use. And as always, as always, thanks for listening, even if you were also playing indoor badminton while we were talking. I assume you're paying some attention anyway.